This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The guest speakers featured on this message. We are coming down the home stretch in the book of Acts. What an awesome study this has been. We are going to look at chapters 25 and 26 together, which is an insane task. It's insane. It's too much. But we're going to hit the mountaintop. So be patient. We're only going to hit some of the key things. There's going to be so much you're going to think, why hasn't he addressed that? Well, you just circle that in your Bible and you go back and you look at that and you let the Holy Spirit speak to whatever I don't speak to. He will speak to you, okay? Our title today is, how you doing? You need me to scooch anywhere? Am I squeaking a little bit? Our title today is Commissioned and Positioned to Stand and Proclaim. And I'm sorry that all four words don't rhyme. Commissioned, positioned, to, I tried. If I could get them all to rhyme, I would. I like that kind of rhymey preaching. I want something sticky. Commissioned and positioned to stand and proclaim. And what we're going to see in the next two chapters, this is serious stuff, is that Paul is a man who is set apart by God and strategically placed right where he is to accomplish the greatest possible impact on the world through the declaration of the gospel. And the amazing thing is that the exact same thing is supposed to be true of you and me. That each of us, as disciples of Jesus Christ, have been uniquely called and commissioned by God, and then strategically placed exactly where we are to have the greatest possible impact on our world by both modeling and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, our title is Commissioned and Positioned to Stand and Proclaim. Let's go to the Lord and ask for His help, okay? Lord, we thank You for a new year, Lord. Thank You for 2014. Thank You for new beginnings. And Lord, we just pray that as we study again the story of our forefathers from nearly 20 generations ago, Lord, that we, as we look at the history of our patriarchs, that we would understand more deeply who we are, more deeply the importance of your church, and how you want to be at work today the exact same way that you were then. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Would you please be the same among us today? We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me. Acts 25. And then we're going to scooch back one verse and jump in together. And I'm going to read the whole chapter of 25. Bear with me. It's a ton of stuff. But I think it's the best way to accomplish what we need to do in limited time this morning. So we have Acts 24, verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Festus left Paul in prison. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, 
asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about this man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there to be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you will go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid out Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up, to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the day, the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in this case of such evils as I supposed but rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead and whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss at how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem to be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tri tribunes and prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought no longer to live. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially to you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, 
I may have something to write, for it seems unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. All right, let me take a deep breath. It's a lot of reading, isn't it? Again, our title is, think with me, Commissioned and Positioned to Stand and Proclaim. If you and I were to think, how do we most effectively help Paul strategize his life to have the greatest possible impact on the world with the gospel, uh, we certainly wouldn't be thinking of false accusations, beatings, murder attempts, and prison. Paul has had nothing but problems since arriving in Jerusalem as prophesied before going. He's falsely accused by the Jews from Asia, nearly pulled to pieces in a riot, Romans stretch him out on a rack to beat him before they discover that he's a Roman citizen. And from this point, for the rest of Paul's life and his trip to Rome, he'll spend every day in prison, the rest of his earthly days. On the way to Caesarea, he narrowly narrowly escapes the plot of 40 assassins who plan to take his life. And though he's found innocent by Governor Governor Felix... As a favor to the Jews, he's still kept in prison. And so we, we come today where Craig left off last week with Paul now being held unjustly for two more years in a Caesarean prison. The new ruler, Festus, again finds no evidence, but like a true politician, he also wants to please his constituents, and he invites Paul to go back to Jerusalem for the trial. But Paul, having had years now in prison to pray and ponder his possible options and knowing the true plan that they want to kill him on the way, plays the final move of the chess game. And as a Roman citizen, he has a right, if accused of a crime in a foreign land, to have the case brought before Rome and before Caesar himself. And he plays the card, I appeal to Caesar And then Festus, after taking counsel with his advisors, affirms, you want to go to Caesar? Okay, to Caesar you're going to go. And so we continue to see Paul bear this insanely unjust process of fall. He's an innocent man. He's still in prison. False accusations, beatings, corrupt politicians illegal imprisonments, and it goes on and on and on. And yet the important thing for us to realize and the important thing for us to understand about Paul and to understand about ourselves is this. Paul is not a victim. Paul is not a victim. He's been commissioned and positioned to stand and proclaim right where he is. He's been called and set apart by God and strategically placed exactly where God has chosen him to be, where he can most powerfully model Christ's kingdom and declare the good news. And Paul knows why he's where he is. Paul knows that. Jesus told him in Jerusalem before all of the mess there, or in the night that he was thrown in prison after he was almost beat, Jesus said to Paul, take courage, for as you've testified about the facts of me in Jerusalem, 
so you will testify in Rome. So Paul knows where he's going. He knows why he's where he is. And Paul's not wasting time moaning about all of his injustices. He's leveraging his life in every way that he possibly can for the glory of God. Even in a Caesarean prison, he's praying, he's studying, he's honing his message, he's preparing for the continuing opportunities to stand before rulers and authorities that have been prophesied to declare the hope of the gospel as Jesus foretold. Some scholars even believe that Paul may have written major parts of the New Testament that you and I benefit from this morning in that Caesarean prison. Many think that he may have written Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians there. What, how precious. What a precious work. What a precious redemption of time. Next in the story we see the arrival of the neighboring ruler, Agrippa, King Agrippa, and his sister Bernice. And they come on a social visit to congratulate Festus on his new reign. King Agrippa, give a little history here, who are these characters? And they are real characters. King Agrippa is Herod Agrippa II, the only surviving son of Herod Agrippa I. And we know him from back in Acts 12, where he had James martyred and Peter imprisoned, all before the Lord struck him down for blasphemy. Uh, King Agrippa is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, our friend who told the wise men to come and, and bring a report to him when they found the promised Messiah, and who slaughtered all the children under the age of two to defend his reign. Agrippa is part Jewish, and so Festus seeks his advice as someone with greater knowledge about the matters that he's dealing with than he has. Agrippa has a reputation of being an expert in Jewish issues. And in light of his family history and his heritage and all that's transpired in Jerusalem in recent years, Agrippa is well, King Agrippa is well aware of who Jesus is. He's well aware of the reported miracles, the rumored resurrection, the explosive growth of this new sect, the way, the church. And Agrippa's curiosity uh, has got the best of him. He cannot pass on the opportunity to hear the legendary Saul of Tarsus, who is now Paul. And Bernice is a character as well. Um, she's Agrippa's younger sister. She's a year younger than him. But she lives with him in an incestuous relationship. After having been the wife of her uncle, Herod of Chalcis, and also married to another king, uh, Polymon. And then even after Agrippa, she moves on to be the mistress of Titus, the, the famous general who ultimately destroys Jerusalem. And so if it were today, these are the characters that you're going to see on the front page of the grocery store tabloids. These are uh, sad, tragic personalities. Okay? And the irony that such a couple would be sitting in judgment of Paul is absolutely incredible. Verse 23 tells us that the hearing takes place with great pomp. 
And all the prominent people of the city and the tribunes and the military leaders that are stationed in Caesarea are all gathered in full regalia. It's a big occasion, and everybody's dressed up in their bling for the gathering of all the local royals and the Roman authorities. And then, at the command of Festus, Paul is brought in before them. Here Jesus' words in Luke 21 are fulfilled. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake, and this will be your opportunity to bear witness. We live in an upside-down world, don't we? Thank you, buddy. We live in an upside-down world. Here we see the glories of this world. Outward beauty, outward power, outward wealth. And before them stands one who displays the glories of another world. History tells us that Paul was short, bald, unattractive. He had weak eyes, a crooked nose. He's unimpressive in every outward way. Add to that the filth and rags, two years in prison, the iron shackles around his ankles. But though Paul is in prison, he knows only freedom. And though Paul is accused, he lives under complete acceptance. And though Paul is penniless, he has unspeakable wealth. And if we look through the, the glasses of our world, we, we see shame and weakness and misery as we look at this man. But if we, if we change our glasses and we put on the eternal glasses of the kingdom of God, of ultimate reality, we see through Christ's kingdom amazing dignity, awesome power, Great joy, great hope. And we've got to learn not to judge things superficially, don't we? We've got to be really careful. Things are not as they seem. We've got to be careful. We also need to learn not to judge things and come to conclusions about things prematurely. One day, every person on the face of the earth will stand before ultimate reality and will face ultimate justice. And we need to pray that God will give every one of us eyes to see that ultimate reality right now so that we can live wisely and rightly today. We desperately need that clear eyesight, don't we? And so now we turn to chapter 26. You talk about a fast flyby, there you go. There's a whole chapter for you. Uh, And obviously there's a lot that's missed there, but let's go to chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. 
especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in in Jerusalem, is known to all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship God night and day. And for this hope I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible that to any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposition of the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they, had, when they were put to death, I cast my vote with them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the regions of Judea and also the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. 
King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So we hear, what a, what a, what a wonderful chapter. We have the privilege of, thank God Luke was there. Luke is in the audience Luke has been caring for Paul with other believers there in Caesarea during the two years that he's been in prison. I'm sure they've been praying together, preparing for this day that was inevitable to come. Luke is in the audience recording everything that is happening so that you and I could, could read about it and, and understand the story of our heritage, to know who we are as we see our forefather, our great-great-great-uncle Paul taking his stand before the, the rulers and kings and priests and proclaiming his magnum opus presentation of the gospel. It's so beautiful. Honestly, you can't, you can't read this stuff without it just uh, tearing you apart to, and on just so many fronts, on so many fronts, to to see who we are. You know, you, you ever get together for family reunions and you pull out the pictures of Uncle Joe and the old ones, the old black and whites, and then you go through the dusty box and you pull out, who is that? Well, that is your great, great, great uncle, whoever. And he did what? Really? He accomplished that? It's, it's wonderful, isn't it, to know who we are. If we know who we are, we'll live wisely. If you don't know who you are, you're going to settle for anything, aren't you? You're going to think you have to start all over again. You've got to create a story. You've got to be somebody. You've got to find out. No, we don't have to find out anything. We just have to continue to follow the blood-stained line that's gone before us. MacArthur talked to the students, to his young recruits, about the, the long gray line. There's a greater line. It's the long blood-stained line of the redeemed who have stood for the kingdom of God in a fallen and wicked world and proclaimed the gospel everywhere they are in everything that they do. And we're a part of that. That's who we are. That's who you are. And we need to know it. And we need to enter a new year aware of it so that we don't live stupid. And we don't buy into all of the baloney around us that tells us a bunch of lies that we're supposed to live for. We've got to know who we are. We need to know the truth. The truth will set us free. So, mm, first thing, Paul puts on a clinic for us of how to wisely communicate the gospel. He begins by honoring King Agrippa. He expresses respect and appreciation for the king's knowledge of all the things that they're talking about and for the privilege of being able to stand before the king and to speak to him. Next, he lays out the credibility of his own life and why he has something to say. That he's 
an exemplary practicing Jew. He's not some new deal. He is a faithful continuance of all that the Scripture has called the people of God to be. And he, talk, he talks about his manner of life from childhood on. That all he's been known by all who have observed his life. He talks about his life as a Pharisee. The strictest order of all of, of, of Judaism. He's a serious player. The guy is not taking it lightly. It's interesting. He doesn't say, I was a Pharisee. He says, I lived as a Pharisee. He's the real deal. He, and he so wisely, so shrewdly expresses shock that he should be on trial for believing in the promised coming Messiah that all the patriarchs waited for and that all sincere Jews believed in. And he can't believe that he's on trial for believing in the resurrection from the dead, which the Old Testament scriptures foreshadow and promise. And that most Orthodox Jews, except for the Sadducees, because they're sad, you see, you know, you all know that joke, right? But most Orthodox Jews all believed in the resurrection of the dead, the hope of the resurrection. Next he communicates how he's just like his accusers. I'm just like you. I'm no different than you. And he talks about how he, persecu- he gets that they hate what he represents. He persecuted Christians in Jerusalem, locking them up and approving of their deaths. He punished them in the synagogues, trying to get them to deny Jesus, trying to get them to blaspheme. And it's interesting that the, the insinuation is he couldn't get them to deny the Lord, and it was outrageous to him. He pursues them to foreign countries. He's on a mission, man. He's a faithful Jew, and he wants to stop and stamp out this nonsense. But on his way to one of those cities, Damascus, something unbelievable happens. And thank God that uh, the same God that encountered Paul on the road to Damascus, Damascus, we've encountered him face to face as well, haven't we? At midday, he sees a light from heaven brighter than the desert, desert sun. And it knocks him down and all the people that are with him. And he hears this voice Isn't it unbelievable that God calls us by name? Saul, Saul, Bill, Ann, Bob. He he knows you. He knows me. He has something intentional, specific for you by name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul responds, who who are you? It's amazing he can even speak. Who are you, Lord? The Lord replies, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And just for a side note, because I can't resist it, um, Jesus doesn't say, I'm Jesus, and you are persecuting my church. No, he says, Jesus completely associates with his church. Jesus and his church are one. He says, you are you persecuting my church? Look, Jack, you are persecuting me. To speak against the church, to stand against the church, is to stand against Jesus. 
And it's good for us to remember that and to be real careful. Even though the church is goofy, you're a part of it, I'm a part of it. We've got to be patient, right? But it's Jesus' church. And Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And there's no second alternative. It's the only plan that God's got to build the church, to equip the saints, to let their light shine, to proclaim the gospel, to rescue a fallen world. It's the only plan. There's no plan B. This is it. I'm giving you the greatest gift you could ever have. First thing, I'm telling you everything about what your life is about. If you have the courage to take a hold of it and live it. That's always the issue for us, isn't it? If we're going to be a Paul or we're going to be a coward. Paul, interesting, earlier on he says, if you want to kill me, I'm ready to die. What makes Paul so bold? He's not afraid of death. He sees beyond the veil. He sees reality. He knows that what you see now is not what it's all about. And he lives like it. And so he can stand before the king. And he can call him down. He can do whatever God wants him to do. So, we need to be careful how we view the church that Jesus gave his blood for. Verse 16. Unbelievable. This is profound stuff. Jesus says to Paul, Paul, stand up. Excuse me. Rise and stand upon your feet. And what he's saying here is not just, look, you got knocked off the horse, get up, I want to talk to you, get back up. This is a commissioning that's going on. This is, now this is an old school example, but this is Robin Hood before good King Richard when he comes back with the sword and I christen the Robin of Loxley. This is, this is the moment where we read of the Old Testament prophets that are set apart for a holy calling to proclaim the word of God to a fallen world. world. And he says to Paul, rise and stand. He's commissioning him. He says, I've appeared to you for a unique purpose. Well, God, what, what is the purpose that you've appeared to me for? I've appointed you a servant and a witness. Is that, is that it? I mean, is Paul's calling and commissioning from God himself the exact same commissioning that I'm called to as a 20th century Christian? Is it, is it that simple? It's amazing. We're called to serve. It's so simple. We're called to serve. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come, our Savior. He didn't come to be served. What? But to serve and to offer His life as a ransom for many. We're called men. We're called to serve our families. We're called to serve our wives and our children. It's about giving our lives away, just like our Savior did, right? Wives, it's about serving. It's serving your husband, serving your kids. Kids, it's about serving mom and dad. It's about helping around the house. It's about serving Christ's church. It's so simple. It's about showing up. It's about being faithful in the simple, obvious stuff. It's about serving. 
It's about finding your post. It's about helping greet people and give somebody a hug and a kiss when they walk through the door. Passing the offering or counting the offering or being a small group leader or watching in children's group or having people into your home. It's so simple. It's serving. It's being a part. It's getting where you're supposed to be and where you're called and then stepping into your role. It's serving in our... This is radical. Serving in your job. The job's not about you. It's not about how cool you are. It's not about your title. It's not about your money. It's about who you are and who you represent and who you have the privilege of serving in Jesus' name. Doing everything you do wholeheartedly for the glory of God. We're called to serve our communities, to serve with the food bank, with the Boy Scouts, with the softball team, with the CPC. Pick your category. Pick your passion. I don't care to vote, to be a faithful citizen, to vote for righteous governments. We're called to serve. But we're also called to witness. We're called to witness. Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world as a witness. And then the end's going to come. The end's not going to come until then. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to be a witness. So that in every setting that we find ourselves in, we're intentionally investing relationally in people and watching for the opportunity to speak the hope of the gospel, to share the great news that we've found because we love people and we want them to find what we've discovered. We're sharing the great news. And we think, well, I... I can't really share the gospel at my job. You know, they're going to think I'm a hypocrite. and You know, there's stuff my boss doesn't think I'm doing a great job. And the other guys aren't really impressed with me. Well, repent. Stop being a hypocrite. Do a great job. And then get right with God and let your light shine and start telling people about Jesus when they see you change. Well, I can't really witness to my family members. You know, there's kind of some loose issues and you know, they wouldn't even mention Jesus. They'd think I was... Well, get it. Stop it. Repent. Don't be a hypocrite. Get right with God. Get right with people and tell them about Jesus. Well, I can't, you know, fill in your lame excuses. Okay, just fill it in. The great thing about witnessing is you can't witness if you don't change. You don't have anything to say if you don't change. You don't have a platform. We have to be authentic. But if we're authentic, people ought to be asking questions. And when they ask questions, we've got something to say, don't we? We've got to be authentic. So, like Paul, like the man, we're called to serve and witness. Jesus continues to clarify Paul's commissioning. He says, I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you a servant and a witness. Verse 17, to deliver you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. It's a strange verse. I'm delivering you from the people, from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. No, it's not really that strange after all. Paul's commissioning is just like ours, isn't it? He's called to come out of the world to come out of the world's thinking, to come out of the world's value system, to be totally different, to live for a completely different vision and purpose. But why? To just sit back and say, hey, aren't we great? Let's have a party. Let's, we're so different. We're going to have the different party. Now you come out of the world so that you can re-enter the world, so that you can take that other 
kingdom perspective and reach out to the people who somebody had a heart to reach out to you, didn't they? Those, thank God they did. Somebody told you about Jesus. We come out of the world to be profoundly different, but we stay in the world because we're just like the people that we're reaching out to. We're all weak. We're all sinners. We need a Savior. And the worst thing that could happen to us as a church is if we just think that it's all about me, my discipleship, my kids, my grandkids. My, i got to have a clean environment. The Jews didn't want to have any Gentiles around. What are any Gentiles around here? Don't let them in the temple. They're gonna, it's going to get unclean. They may touch Billy. And it's going to be awful. We've got to be really careful that we're not the same thing as a church. If we're an authentic church, it will be messy all the time. All the time. There's always going to be new believers. There's always going to be somebody who thinks something stupid. There's always going to be somebody having a conversation with Billy that isn't Bible. And how can that be? We can't have that happen. No, that's the way Billy's going to grow. That's the way we're going to grow. We're going to find our life in giving our life away. And so the church is called to be a place of training and equipping disciples who reach the world and bring those messy, ugly, dirty people in to experience the same cleanup that you've been privileged to enjoy. We're on mission like Paul. Verse 18, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. How beautiful. Paul continues in verse 19. I was not King Agrippa. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I would hope not. If God appears to you and commissions you, that's a great case. I chose to obey God. Good for you. The question for us is, have you obeyed God? Have we obeyed the heavenly vision? Do we know what it is? Have we ordered our life appropriately so that we're in line with what matters to Jesus? Are we obedient to the heavenly vision? And if we're not, that's totally great. You can get right in line behind me and we can come up at the end and we can pray and ask God to forgive us, be forgiven and stop that nonsense and get back on track living for what matters. Verse 20, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles. Oh no, God forbid. What did Paul declare? Here's what he declared. That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. It's interesting. Paul's message here, guys, repent Turn to God, perform deeds in keeping with your repentance. This is not the message of 20th century Christianity. This is not, hey, just poor Jesus is in the cold. Won't you let him into your warm heart? Don't you want to accept Jesus? He's knocking. Poor Jesus. No, Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords. Biblical Christianity is bow your knee, submit your life to him, turn away from the world. Jesus is King and Lord. Order your life according to His will. Stop doing the stupid stuff. Start doing the godly stuff. And everything changes so that when we open our mouths, we're legit. That's the gospel message. That's what we're called to proclaim, just like Paul did. And Paul concludes, 
how, how amazing. He concludes highlighting God's sustaining grace to him. And then he can't help himself, but he gives the gospel one more sweep. He says, verse 22, To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. What a perspective. After two years in prison, all that he has been through, what he looks forward to, he's aware of the help that comes from God that has commissioned him to be who he is, positioned him exactly where he is, and called him to stand and declare. And so he says, I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And if you're like me, if you've ever led a meeting, if you've ever done something, and you're kind of coming up to the, you got to, you know, you're building some steam, and you want to make your main point, there's always some distraction. You're teaching a class, you're trying to have a meeting with the kids, you're trying to have a conversation with your wife or your husband. You're getting ready to make the main point. Guess what? There's a major, something happens, some of the kids fall out of bed or who knows what it may be. And so, of course, we've got one of these here where Festus blurts out, you're crazy, your learning is making you mad. Uh, But Paul stays right on track, he's not ruffled at all. And he stays on track, focusing on King Agrippa, who fully understands everything that he's talking about. He says, For the king knows about these things, and I speak to him boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa calls him, calls him to close the deal. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Well, Agrippa is is in the corner. Grippa is in a quandary. He can't say that he doesn't believe the prophets because he's, he's a Jew. You know, he's, he's, he's a king of the Jews. But he also doesn't dare acknowledge that what the prophets say is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the risen King of kings and Lord of lords, the promised Messiah. And so like all good politicians, he, he, he pulls a smooth one and he responds, he says, in, sh- in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? What he's, he's really saying is, this has been too brief of a presentation. I really need to have more time to ponder this, and we'll hear this another day. But we're so grateful for your, for your time, sir. And Paul responds with great clarity, without apology, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And at this, po- at this point, the hearing is dismissed. They all acknowledge that Paul has done nothing wrong. Yet according to God's sovereign commissioning and positioning, Paul is on his way to Rome, where he will stand and proclaim the gospel to Caesar himself. Paul's a man who's been commissioned and positioned to stand and proclaim. And so are each of us who bear the title, Disciples of Christ. We've been commissioned. We've been set apart to bear the name of Jesus Christ. 
We're new creations in Christ. We're born of another race. We're of another world. We're set apart for God's holy purpose. We've been given a position. God has sovereignly placed each of us exactly where He wants us to be. In this marriage, your marriage is not a prison. Your work is not a prison. Your, all of the trials that you think you're dealing with, they are all a part of God's sovereign positioning you for you to stand and proclaim. Don't get duped. Don't read it wrong. See what God is doing and stand for His glory. Our marriages, our kids, our schoolwork, our work, our church faithfulness, our relationships in the neighborhood, our service to our city and to our nation. There's no mistakes with God. There's only failures on our part to see where He's called us and to engage faithfully. From the place of commissioning and positioning from God, we're called to stand, brothers and sisters. We're called to stand, believing that God is really at work in somebody like me. That the good work that Jesus has begun, He will finish. We're called to stand as new creations in Jesus Christ, knowing who we are. To stand looking through the lens of the gospel so that we see life in reality. To stand on the promises of God's Word, which is the unshakable rock that we can draw from. And finally, we're called to proclaim to actually build relationships with unbelievers, to open our mouths and to tell them about Jesus Christ. When is the last time that you opened your mouth and told somebody about Jesus? When is the last time you had a meaningful friendship with someone who doesn't know Jesus? If you don't, if you haven't, you can get in line right behind me. We'll come up at the end here and we'll all repent. We'll ask the Lord to forgive us, to freshly breathe His Spirit on us, and then we're going to start to put on some different glasses and to look and see and take intentional initiative to invest and build in relationships that God has prepared for you in advance, that you can love, that you can serve, where you can share the gospel, and you can be an ordinary Christian. Because if we aren't doing that, we are not ordinary Christians. We are goofy. And we need to stop it in 2014. Okay? So, we're called to proclaim, to build relationships, to open our mouths, to tell people about Jesus' life, who He was, what He did, His death, His resurrection, that He paid for their sins, that He can restore them to a relationship with the God who created everything so that they could join us in a life that's commissioned and positioned to stand and proclaim what really matters. Let's stand together and let's ask the Lord to help us do that. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.